Thank you, Lord. We're in Mark 9, uh, starting in verse 42 today. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your presence, for your goodness to your people, for your faithfulness throughout the generations. Father, this morning, we rest in your leadership. We rest in your provision. And we just say again, we, we are clay on the potter's wheel. So we surrender control and we ask for you to mold us, shape us to your design, to your desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. Amen. Well, I told you last week I've been reading about the Waldensians, this what you would call a, a, a proto-Protestant group, or they were Protestants before the Protestant Reformation. They believed in the Bible, reading the Bible for yourself. Um, and because they read the Bible for themselves, oftentimes they disagreed with uh, Catholicism starting in the medieval period. They have their roots, most argue, in uh, the 1100s, but they exist um, even to today, Waldensians do. Um, but because they believed that the Bible was God's word and they read it for themselves, which was crazy rare, they disagreed with the teaching, the official teaching of the church oftentimes. And for that, they were called heretics. The big, uh, the big frustration that the Catholic church had with the Waldensians was that they preached in public. Um, they held Bible studies. Shame on them for gathering in a home to read the Bible together. Um, but they taught against things like purgatory. It's all the stuff we believe. They, they taught against, um, indulgences that the, the Pope couldn't sell forgiveness. Um, and so in that way, they were very much Protestants before the Protestant Reformation. Well, I've just been reading and you guys know the, what do we call it today? Hyperfixation where you get stuck on something and you just do it. Um, I've been fixating on the Waldensians and this week I was reading us, uh, what was called, um, the massacre of Piedmont, the persecution of Piedmont, uh, of 1655, where the Waldensians in kind of, gosh, geography is not fun. I'm just trying to picture Europe in my brain right now. Um, kind of Southern Western France, uh, where Switzerland and, and, and Italy kind of all meet. The Waldensians were, uh, in this region called Savoy at the time. And the Duke of Savoy in 1655, he told the Waldensians that they had 20 days to either sell their land and move out of his region or to participate in mass, which for them was an insult to their beliefs. You've got 20 days to sell your land and move up into a, um, another valley. Well, most of them did. They sold their land and uh, they moved into another valley, and which was, it was like winter. They're carrying their kids through like frozen rivers and waters. It was dangerous. People got sick. Um, not fun. Um, after the 20 days, when the Waldensians, they, they went into a region of, of other Protestants where they were welcomed and celebrated. After the 20 days, the Duke of Savoy um, gathered troops and essentially by moving them into another region, he kind of localized them. He gathered troops and they just slaughtered the mess out of them. So he told them, you got 20 days to move. They all went through this journey, moved all their stuff. But in reality, they were just condensed into a smaller area. And um, the the they were Catholics. The Catholics were essentially told that if they murdered the Waldensians, that they would um, be forgiven, that there was like a, a benefit to the the murder. And so uh, these these Waldensians, they, they weren't just murdered. They were like uh, raped. The women were raped. They were um, tortured. There are awful, God-awful stories of 
young children being decapitated and the fathers having being forced to carry the heads of their young children. Um, eventually, a group of them escaped and they were hiding in a cave on a cliff and they were found. And when they were found on the cave, they were essentially forced to walk out over the cliff to their death. Again, um, mothers and babies and all. Um, Milton, John Milton, you remember who wrote Paradise Lost, uh, has a famous poem called On the Late Massacre of Piedmont, where he wrote this, um, Avenge, O Lord, thy slaughtered saints, whose bone lies scattered on the alpine mountains cold. Even them who kept thy truth so pure of old. When all our fathers worship stocks and stones, forget not in thy book, record their groans, who were thy sheep in their ancient fold, slain by the bloody Piedmonts that rolled, mother with infant down the rocks. And so Milton is, he, when he says they rolled mother, mother with infant down the rocks, he's acknowledging this, this point in history. Uh, Milton was alive when this happened, um, where these people were just wildly slaughtered. Now I'm reading this story and as I'm reading it, it's the massacre, the persecution, the things that happened, I gave you the surface level of much deeper and darker. And as I'm reading it, I'm going, oh God, get them out. Jesus, get, now I'm praying 500 years too late. Um, but I'm going, Lord, this is, get them out of this. Stop it. And there's, there's, a, there's an awful line of scripture, if I can say it that way. <laughs> awful is not a good description. Where Jesus in the high priestly prayer, um, which is the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus as he's working towards the cross. In the high priestly prayer, he prays this. Verse 15 of chapter 17 of John's gospel. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I think that's the worst prayer Jesus could have prayed. I would have really appreciated a father snatch them out. I'm the only one, apparently. I don't know. I do not ask that you take them out, but that you keep them from the evil one. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They have the word, and because they have the word, the world hates them as the world hated me. I don't ask that you take them out. I'm screaming as I read this text, please. Because the Christian life in this world can feel exhausting. There's an, like a demonic assault, spiritual warfare that we all wrestle with. There's our own sin nature, which is really frustrating. There's persecution and pressure to bow to the ways and the agenda of culture. There are many times where many of us just want to be done. Sometimes that's why many of us love like pre, pre-trib rapture because it's escapism. We just get to get out real quick. Not because we have a strong biblical evidence for that position, but because we like to escape. Theological debate for another day. There's a problem here for all of us, and the problem is that Jesus wants us here. 
The reason he prays, do not take them out, is because he wants us here. He knows that we're going to be hated, yet he still wants us here. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, yet he still wants you here. He knows from his own incarnation, the frustrations, the trials, the struggles, the temptations. He himself goes hungry, tempted by Satan. He gets all of that, and still he wants you here. And he he prays, God, don't take them out, but keep them from the evil one. So he wants you here, and he wants you here not participating in the schemes and the plans and the wickedness of the evil one. Here, sanctified. Here, living full of his word, um, spreading and drawing attention to, teaching, preaching his word. Here, full of the word, not tainted by the evil one. Protect them from the evil one. Keep them from the evil one. I don't even believe Jesus is praying that we would be protected physically from the evil one. Because saints over and over are slaughtered. I think he's praying, keep them here, but keep their souls from participating in the wickedness of Satan. In other words, he wants us here, in the middle of all this frustration, full of the word, yet kept from Satan. Now, let me read to you from Mark chapter 9. And with this truth established that you don't get to get out, neither do I, we have to ask the question then, how does Jesus want us to live here in the midst of temptation, trial, and frustration? If he wants us here, how does he want us to live here? Mark 9, verse 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Everyone will be salted with fire. Now, remember again, just for a moment, context where we are. We read last week that Jesus is, is, is leaving Galilee and Capernaum. He's walking towards Jerusalem. And as he gets ready to walk towards the cross, he's discipling the disciples, we said. He's not drawing big crowds and teaching thousands of people. He's teaching his 12. And he's talking to his 12 about some very important uh, discipleship things. What it means to follow Jesus, to be a member of his kingdom. We said last week that the first thing he said to the disciples is, I am not going to murder the Romans. The Romans are going to murder me. We are going to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth through selfless sacrifice. Again, Peter wants to bring the kingdom of heaven with a sword. I get it. Jesus says, we're going to bring the kingdom through selfless 
sacrifice. He's establishing the ethos or the atmosphere of what the kingdom will be like. Secondly, the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says the atmosphere, the ethos, the culture of heaven is such that the greatest in my kingdom will be the servant of all, the lowest. Those who go out of their way to to serve, to get down low, those are the ones who are going to be the greatest. Not those who establish dominance through their personality or giftedness. And lastly, John said, look, there are other people casting out demons in your name, Jesus, and they're not on our team. And Jesus says, there are no teams. We actually exist to bring freedom to people who are demonically oppressed. Who cares? Who brings the freedom? Who prayed the prayer? We celebrate in all instances, liberty and freedom and healing and life. Now he's chipping away, we said last week. He's chipping away at this posture that the disciples carry and that we all carry. We called it last week, King of the Hill Syndrome or Big Man on Campus Syndrome. All of us wanting to be dominant rather than wanting to serve, sacrifice, be selfless. Now, so he he talked very much about selflessness, sacrificial love, the culture of humility. And now this week he turns and he acknowledges that the disciples are going to wrestle with temptation. You're going to live in this world, and in this world, there will be a temptation to participate in hell, to participate in wickedness, evil. The first thing he says is that temptation will at times come from without. The second thing he says is that temptation will at times come from within. One, the first thing he addresses is that sometimes little ones are tempted to participate in sin, and the tempter, everyone say tempter, the tempter, it would be better for the tempter to take a millstone, which was a large stone, you guys have seen pictures of millstones, with a hole in the middle that was used to grind grain. He said it would be better to take that large stone and put your head right through the middle circle and jump into the ocean than to continue to tempt these little ones into sin. Now, Little ones, emphatically, is not confined to children. Okay? Little ones would be included. But the, the, the idea, the Greek here, Jesus is not saying anyone who causes children to sin should throw themselves into the sea. Little ones, emphatically, in the Greek, Jesus is referring to the disciples. And he is, in a way, referring to disciples as pure, sincere, childlike followers of Jesus. And anyone who tempts pure, sincere, childlike followers of Jesus to participate in sin, Jesus says it would be better for them to go ahead and kill themselves because judgment is coming quickly. So the first thing we gather is that Jesus sees that as we live here where he wants us, that there are people trying to tempt us out of fellowship and communion and relationship with him, and Jesus is frustrated with it. And we'll judge all of those who participate in the enticing of disciples into evil. With that warning, we ought to be real sure, real confident, that we are in no way enticing fellow believers into sin. Do you know the purity of someone who's just come to faith? Like when you, the, you know, the first three months of being saved. 
and, and oftentimes these individuals, um, they're not really biblically literate yet, right? You've been saved for three months. You haven't been reading the Bible for 20 years. You didn't go to Sunday school. Maybe you did, but you didn't listen like me. Wasn't impressed with felt. I don't know. What isn't my thing? Um, there's a purity and a sincerity and an ignorance that, that all of us in our discipleship process experience at some point. If you think of a new disciple, every one of us experiences ignorance. Not, not ignorance in a negative way, in a, in a natural way. Childlike ignorance. And Jesus is saying that, that, that the world and I think fellow believers need to be sure that we are not enticing those who are in the state of childlike ignorance into sin. How would you entice those in a state of childlike ignorance into sin? Well, you could do something like get church hurt. Maybe Caleb said something that hurt your feelings or an elder talked to you about a sin pattern in your life and you're really frustrated with it. And so you spin a narrative in your own bitterness. Anyone else ever spun a narrative in their in their bitterness? You lay in bed at night and you begin to accuse and assault. And then to take that narrative and then to spew it on an ignorant believer, a new believer, a young believer, or a, or a sincere believer over lunch might be enticing that believer into a state of bitterness and frustration. And you're taking your sin and depositing upon someone who's ignorant. Okay, you want to talk about a, a warning here for the liberal church in America? You start teaching licentiousness or the idea that because of grace you can have sex with whoever you want? You establish in the culture of, of Christianity the idea that sexuality should be explored and expressed in any way that's pleasurable and you teach that to an ignorant disciple or a child being raised in your church who's learning on one hand to trust in Jesus while on the other hand you're constantly extending to them that their sexuality has no bounds, I would warn that that is luring a child like faith into evil. Now, now that, that doesn't mean that, that I think we should all be uptight, but we might want to make sure what we're teaching is what the Bible teaches. Because, because if not, we are, we are luring those innocent ones. So, so this is a discipleship conversation, right? And let me, let me just lobby this. You need to consider in your relationships with other people who are here in this earth because Jesus wants them here, whether or not you are spurring people on in their love for Jesus and in their worship to Jesus or whether you are actually dragging them down into your own wickedness. Man, you live, I promise you, like you live in sexual sin, or you can't stand your husband, and you need other people to can't not stand their husband so you feel better about where you are. Right? Misery loves. We have to make sure that, that we're, we're not in, in our hearts, in our hardest seasons, discipling people towards hell but that we're spurring them towards Jesus. Next, after he talks about those who tempt, the tempters tempting the little ones, he begins to talk to the disciples about temptation that arises from within. We have a sin nature. We, 
at the cross have been born again. We've received a new nature. Our spirits have come alive. We have new desires. But these old desires, these fleshly, carnal desires, seem to keep wanting to poke their head back up. So he begins to talk about your your eyes and your hands and your feet. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to, to not have eyes than to go to hell with two. If your feet cause you to sin, cut them off. Historically speaking, the church father Origen, there's tradition that says that he um, emasculated himself out of frustration. Don't recommend that, okay? Not not a big fan. That's obviously not the implication of the text. He's using metaphor here to talk about the fact that sometimes there are things that you value and even view yourself as needing that lead you into sin so you keep them around. If Jesus were to say, if your hair causes you to sin, cut it off. I could I can I can deal with hair, okay? I could be bald. He were to say, if your earlobe causes you problems, cut, all right. Don't necessarily want to cut my earlobe off, but I could, I could deal with it. When he starts talking about my eyes, eh, kind of need those. He starts talking about my hands. I'd rather not live a life without hands. Not vital organs. I could live a life without hands. You follow the metaphor here? Not vital, but necessary is, would like to have, and, and there, Matthew Henry calls these things our Delilahs. Samson with, with Delilah the prostitute. You'd like to have. It brings you some kind of value, maybe ease in your life. Are there things in your life that you are cherishing that are actually participating in discipling you for hell? Relationships. Man, who are you hanging out with? And there's a time in every believer's life where you get, you have to get a new group of friends. That's part of the discipleship journey. doesn't mean you stop sharing the gospel with them, but it does mean you stop sharing liquor with them. And you start talking about like, man, every one of us in the room, let's just be real transparent and honest. Every one of us have got to tame the desires of the flesh as it pertains to sexuality. We've all got to figure out how to bring those desires into submission to the gospel of Jesus. If you are in relationship with someone where you are expressing those desires in a way that dishonors Jesus, at some point, you've got to cut off the relationship. Sometimes you need to get a new hobby. You need to, there, there are times in my life where I'm wrestling with depression or sorrow, and there are times where I have to turn off the music. Like, I've got to get a new music style, genre. To live here, Jesus wants you here. To live here, you've got to cut things off. The Puritans called this mortification or, or a severing, a putting to death. There are going to be people who try to tempt you into sin from the outside. Jesus says, I'll deal with that. I'll deal with that. Be better for them to take a millstone on their head because I'm going to deal with the tempters. But the temptations that arise from inside, you got to deal with. 
you've got to cut off. To be a saint is to, Martin Luther said, all of the Christian life is repentance. You've got to have a Holy Spirit knife where you're ready to just chop at stuff. Even stuff that you feel like makes your life better or easier. It might be where you're spending your money or your investments or you've got a business deal that's going and you know in your gut that it's not honest and God says, cut it off even if you lose some money. To exist here in godliness, we have to be those who are ready to chop some things off. So he says, temptation in this life is going to come from tempters. I got that. I'll deal with it. Temptation in this life is going to rise up from within. There are going to be things that you love and cherish that dishonor me. You've got to deal with it. And then he says, and I want you to know that for all of your life, I am salting you with fire. Now that, that's a strange, a really strange line of scripture that commentators and scholars just wrestle and wrestle and wrestle with. But let me give you the like common understanding of what he means by saying, you will be salted with fire. Leviticus 2.30. Oh, we're starting over. <laughs> Eight, nine. Leviticus 2.13 says, You shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing. The salt of the covenant. That's a strange phrase, right? The salt of the covenant. So, in particular offerings, salt was a requirement for sacrifice. Now, fire is obviously sacrificial language. So, um, fire and salt both prove or expose or purify. Um, they, they bring to the surface things that you don't want so that they can be sifted out. Fire and, and salt together come together in the moment of sacrifice in the moment of an animal being offered to the Lord or, or grain being offered to the Lord, they're, they're both attributes that, that bring about a moment of worship that in some way seasons or purifies or purges the thing being sacrificed. So Jesus is saying, you are the thing being sacrificed. Romans 12, 2, present yourself as a living sacrifice. I could just, like, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 says that all of our lives at the end will, um, there'll be a fire put on us. And whether we build with wood, hay, and stubble, or precious jewels, that'll be exposed. It'll be exposed by fire. 1 Peter 4, 12, don't be alarmed or surprised by the fiery trial when it comes to test you, there are fiery trials in this life that are coming to test you. James 1, 2-4, when you meet trials, count it all joy, because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So now in this idea, we have fire of trials, fire of purging, fire of testing, that is, that is testing, purging my life as a sacrifice, and as it purges, tests it tests me, it produces 
something in me. It seasons, it flavors, it produces things in me that I can present to God as a holy sacrifice. So in other words, my life, all of the trials, all of the testing, all the frustration, all of the wrestling with temptation, and all of that, God is purging me, seasoning me, preparing me to be a sacrifice that's pleasing to him. And I stand right here in the middle of all the frustrations and I scream, I don't want to be here. I am so sick of it. You know, the relational bickering and the drama and the gossip and the I'm, I'm wrestling with my own bitterness and my own frustration and my own anxiety and I'm just tired. God is calling us in this text of scripture to step back and to recognize that there is a flow of worship that's taking place in my life. And I am here in the middle of the current relational frustrations, wherever you are, in the middle of your financial problems, in the middle of your emotional, in the middle of your marriage feeling really rocky, and you're having to learn how to communicate, and you're doing counseling. In the middle of that, God is making you a more precious sacrifice for his own glory. And that's what you signed up for. He wants you here, in the middle of it, in the middle of it, you've got to resist outward temptation. He's going to deal with that. You've got to cut things off in the middle of it, and in the middle of it, he is constantly purging me. And so I find myself in these situations I'm real frustrated with. I'm real tired. Again, like, do you ever just say to your kids, mm-hmm. And I, I, as I've processed the last several weeks, prayed with my prayer group on Tuesday mornings, we've been talking about the idea of not growing weary and doing good. That, that sometimes the enemy, in the, it's, it's, it's insane and frustrating the way in which the enemy will attack and God will use the attack to purge me. And so um, sometimes in the middle of it, I'm like, I don't know what's the enemy and what's God. And, and that can feel real frustrating. Sometimes in the middle of all the purging, in the middle of all the emotions, the enemy comes to frustrate us into weariness. And you start to just disengage with your spiritual life. It's easier to just watch TV, to turn off. Anybody else ever been there? Just turn off. You're frustrated with these people and you know that it would be godly to go sit down with them and have a conversation and repent. And you just... I don't, I don't have it. I don't have the want to. I don't have the juice anymore. And I feel like God's been saying in this season that some of us are here where we're just weary. You're frustrated. You're weary in the flow. He's actually producing something in you. He actually wants you right where you are. He actually, nowhere in the scripture does God ask us, where do you want to be in life? You, you are in the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and, Abednego, and, I, and I put you there. I want you there. Be there. Be in the fire. But you can't grow weary in the fire. And you have to remember that God's doing something in the fire. So Paul in Philippians, he's um, in prison. You, you know, Paul wrote Philippians from prison. It's called the Epistle of Joy, which is an oxymoron, it feels like. Because who's got joy in prison? No one. But Paul, um, 
Paul in, in, in Philippians. Again, he's, he's in prison. He's told us that he's hungry, that he's tired. I imagine that Paul felt frustration. Like, I don't think if Jesus wasn't exempt to the emotions of life, Paul certainly wasn't exempt to the emotions of life. Like, I just doubt that he sat down there in a prison cell hungry and thought to himself, this is awesome. I think that he, he, he got to the place in his heart where he sat down in the prison cell and said, God must have me here for a reason. When he writes to the Philippians, he actually does say this. What's awesome about this is that the guards are, are hearing the gospel. In other words, that maybe God made me sit in the prison cell so that people have to get paid to listen to me. Um, perspective, right? He's finding perspective. What could God be doing right now? And whatever God is doing right now, it must be good and pleasing to him. So he writes at the, the end of Philippians, uh, in chapter 3, verse 12 to 15, he says, not that I've already obtained this, he's talking about the upward call, the, the perfection, or, or that I'm already perfect, but he says, but I press on to make it my own. In other words, I am in the flow of God purifying me. I'm not, I'm not made it yet. I'm still in the middle of it. I'm in the middle of the frustrations. I'm in the middle of the purging. I'm in the middle of all the anxiety and fear and wrestling down my perspective. I'm in the middle of the flow, man. I'm in it. Jesus didn't take me out. I'm in it. Not made it, still here. He says, verse 13, I don't consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. Okay. He said, I'm in prison. I've not obtained perfect righteousness. I'm still being sanctified. I'm still wrestling down my own perspective. I'm still trying to learn godliness. I'm still growing in righteousness. I'm forgetting all the junk of yesterday. I'm pressing on toward what's ahead. Mature people think this way. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Pressing on, knowing we haven't made it, knowing there's going to be more frustrations, more purging, more anxiety to deal with, knowing that we're going to have to find perspective in the scripture and in prayer tomorrow when tomorrow's problems come. Mature people live this way. And then he said, but those of you who who don't think this way, God will teach you soon enough. So, as, as dad of six, pastor of the church, person like everyone else in the room, with emotional highs and lows. and Like, I'm, I am having to learn to step back and look at my life and go, man, I haven't made it. I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. There, there are times where I'm going to do things that I wish I didn't do. I'm still acting out of my own insecurities. I'm still acting out of my own frustration and anxieties at times. And God's leading me in these situations where he's turning up the heat, which I don't like. And every day I'm having to step into it, live in the heat, and go, man, God, you, are, you must be making me such a pleasing sacrifice to you. So if Jesus wants us here, he wants us to learn to live holy here, resisting temptation, cutting things off, and he wants us to embrace the being salted with fire, the purging, the sacrificial nature of being sanctified. 
if, if all of this is true, then the modern Christian deception that give your life to Jesus and life will be really easy must be heresy. So, he wants me here in the middle of a process that's painful, frustrating, yet purifying. And somehow, we try to bring people to faith by telling them, give your life to Jesus and all your problems are going to go away. I say, give your life to Jesus and all your problems are going to be exposed. You know what I mean? Like, he's, he's going to draw to the surface the things in you that, that are not holy and pure and clean. And that is painful, yet good. Painful, yet good. I think some of us this morning need to feel the liberty to take a deep breath and go, life is frustrating right now, and I'm struggling right now, and everything's not happy-go-lucky and beautiful, and you are not less spiritual for acknowledging that. Like, sometimes we have this idea that we've only got two options, to totally deny that we ever have problems, or to lay down to them. You know what I mean by that? It's not faith to, to have your arms severed off and walk around and say, I've got two arms. No, you don't. I would call that lying. You might have a prosthetic arm. It's in the same way your marriage is really struggling. Or you're just, you know what I mean? You, you're just relationally, things are not clicking. You're frustrated. You're doing counseling. You're doing all the right things, but things aren't getting any better. There's nothing in the Christian life that says you have to sit before everybody and go, everything's perfect. Like you're allowed to take a deep breath and go, I'm in the fire right now. I am in the fire of God's purging. But I'm going to press on and believe that what he's doing in me will bring him glory. My life belongs to him, and he has the right to do with it what he pleases. Not doing escapism, God, just get me out of this. Not doing the disengaged thing where I just quit going to church, quit going to counseling, quit being discipled, quit small groups and just disengage and put Netflix on and hope my brain falls asleep. I'm going to engage in the fire, stand in it, and believe that in the frustration, God is making me pleasing to Jesus. Emma, you want to come for me? Are you going to lead us today? Why don't you go ahead and stand to your feet? We'll get ready to close.